Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joshua J, and you're listening to How Magicians Think. This episode is one of my favorites to record. It's called Think Like a Magician. How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. It's about taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. I want to take you behind the curtain so that you can see the inner beauty of magic and appreciate the world's most secretive profession in a whole new way. I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think. Welcome to the show. In this final episode of How Magicians Think, we're going to do something a little different. And it's not only different from this show, it's different from most podcasts. But this wouldn't be a show about bringing magic into your life for success if we didn't do things a little differently. This episode is all about the reveal, or how your deeper understanding of magic will help you be a more creative, even innovative thinker, from idea generation right down to execution. I'm similar to you in the fact that I love magic, but I've only done one magic trick my entire life, and it's one you taught me, and it's, it's like always works, and it's fantastic. It's one that involves a wine glass and causing a, a card to change in the deck. But I really have made a conscious choice to treat magic like it's really magic. And the more, as I started to learn a little bit about magic, I thought, no, no, I don't want to learn about magic because for me, what makes it special is the child like, oh my God, how in the world did that happen? I was performing at the University of Chicago. And after my show there, I got to meet a hero of mine. And that's Stephen Levitt, co-creator of the Freakonomics brand. Stephen Levitt has been a part of so many groundbreaking surveys and books that they are too numerous to even mention. But what I didn't know about Mr. Levitt is that he loves magic. I wonder whether it's the seeing the magic trick that matters or whether it's seeing a magic trick and seeing the method explained. Because I almost think you don't have to explain the method. It's almost like just seeing the magic trick gets you out of whatever rut you're in. I mean, one thing's for sure. I'm sure it's true in magic. I know it's true in academics. It's way easier to steal someone else's good idea and repurpose it to what you need than it is to come up with one from scratch because ideas are rare. They're hard. Everything starts with an idea, whether you're a magician, an artist, or an economist. But how do you generate ideas and discern a good idea from a bad idea? You know, when I was young, idea generation was everything. I explored the literature on idea generation, and in particular, it turned out that people in advertising had spent an inordinate amount of time trying to develop clever approaches. And in particular, there was a guy, I forget his name, but he wrote a book that was called A Whack in the Side of the Head. And it was a really good, clever book. And it was just a, a list of 50 or 100. It turned into a 
a deck of cards as well, ways to figuratively whack yourself on the side of the head so that you could start thinking differently. And it was really remarkable to me how effective it was, right? You're kind of stuck. And then you open up this book to random page 81, and it says to do something silly. And then, I don't know, I, I did it a lot. So I, I, you know, empirically, I guess I figured it was really valuable and I recommend it to lots of people. I'm going to let you in on something personal, which is that it was really, really hard for me to sell how magicians think. For the longest time, publishers would give the same sort of feedback over and over, which is feedback, by the way, that I completely reject. And the feedback would go something like this. I'm used to hearing it because I heard it a lot for a 10-year period trying to sell this book. Yes, but why should anybody care about magic? What can magic really teach us about the world? Does magic really have anything to say to non-magicians? And this offends me for a couple of reasons. First, of course it does. To abjectly dismiss magic as being something that others can benefit from seems really arbitrary and sort of dumb. And secondly, magic has applications far beyond the boundaries of performing on a stage. And I hope this episode helps you see that. What is the point of the story? Artist, illustrator, and podcaster Andy J. Pizza helps us rethink the idea of originality and the importance of clarity in the creative process. I take such inspiration from the visual arts when I think about magic because of the editing. You know, it's so clear on the page that anything that doesn't add subtracts and that everything there has to serve a purpose because you are physically adding it. In the performance of magic, it's a little harder and a lot more abstract, but I'm always telling magicians like, it every single line, every single gesture, every time you set something down on a table or introduce a new prop, if it isn't adding, it's subtracting. You know, the hardest part, not just for me, for any magician I've ever talked to, the hardest part in, in developing new magic is knowing what to cut out, knowing when to quit an idea, knowing when it's just not quite working or, or a strategy needs changing. Can you take us through your process of when you know it's time to let up go or time to move on or time to change strategies? I think about editing a lot, and the, the lens I think about it through is this idea of armature i'm a huge like student of the school of thought of story from this writer brian mcdonald and he talks about how great stories have an armature and ba and, and that armature word is just like the skeleton of a story everything hangs on the armature and the armature is just basically what is the point of the story and once you have a clear idea of this is what I want to say with this show, with this performance, with this book. Every single thing has to be supporting that point. And once you do that, you can, you, once you get really brutal about that, you'll be blown away by how poignant you can be when, when, when they finally get that, oh, every single piece was here for a reason. That, that's where you really get something special. And I, you know, I think a lot about creativity and I think a lot about originality and I think about what is the point of creativity and I actually think that we get a little bit too overblown in, in what we think we're here to do as creatives. I think we, we think we're here to add this huge pile of things that have never been seen when in fact, 
I think of originality more like this uh, James Fitch, James Stephen quote. Originality does not consist of saying what no one has ever said before, but in saying exactly what you think. And so for me, it's almost like a mantra when I'm going to create. I'm thinking, what do I want to say? Sometimes if I'm stuck, I'll just say, what do I want to say? What do I want to say? Until I get into that crystal thing of like, this is what this is about, and then filter all the rest of the work through that. We just, we're finishing up a picture book manuscript right now, and we finally got, this is the point of the book. And then all of a sudden, editing just became so simple. And all the other times when we were going through the book, I was like, oh, we can't cut that. I love that bit. Oh, I love, oh, yeah. And then as soon as you get that lens of, yeah, but is it about this? Does it support this? Does it point back to that? All of a sudden, you can cut it. You're like, no, that doesn't have anything to do with it. I don't care. doesn't matter how much I like it. Cut all that stuff. Here's the lens through which I see that same point. So I asked my friend Joe Posnanski, who's a very well-known author and, and baseball critic, actually. He wrote a book on Houdini that's really great. He's a guest on this podcast in a different episode. And I said to him, like, hey, I've got to write this book. It's called How Magicians Think, and I have all these ideas, but I'm a little lost. I'm overwhelmed. What advice would you give me? And he thought for a long while, and he was like, here's some advice somebody gave to me. This isn't original with me, but I'll pass it on to you. And this turned out to be the best advice. And I hadn't heard this term you're using, armature, but it's the same thing. What he said was, you need to figure out the core goal of your book. Distill it down to one sentence, and then take that sentence and write it down on a post-it note and stick it to your monitor so that it's staring you in the face so that every chapter, every outline, every sentence you write, you are forced to ask yourself, does this contribute to that sentence or not? And for those who are interested who are listening, that sentence for me was, I want to deepen people's appreciation for magic and magicians. That's it. So my success rate on projects, I would guess is about one out of 20. So I have 19 failures. But how do you know when to quit an idea? Stephen Levitt says, we don't quit enough. In general, every project I have starts with an idea. And I have a couple things I do to weed out projects. The first one is, unless I'm really excited, I always try to have a cooling off period on ideas because I've virtually never had an idea that when it popped into my head, wasn't the single best idea that I'd ever had in my entire life. And if I wait three days number one it doesn't even i can barely remember it was my idea it almost seems like it might be someone else's idea and number two most of the time i don't think it's that good an idea anymore so i might kill half of my projects at the idea phase because it's just they're not good enough to really pursue the other thing i really emphasize is what i call a fast first cut i'm always looking for a way to figure out within an hour or two whether the basic statistics match up with what my intuition says they would have to be to make this interesting. And more, I mean, it's gotten easier and easier to do that over time because of the availability of data. And I would say another half of the projects die there, uh, maybe more. And then um, the rest of the projects, I'm a firm believer that we don't quit enough. I I don't know if you know about my study I did with um, a coin toss. So I did a very unique experiment in economics, which is economics is supposed to be the science of decision making. But when people would come to me and say, should I make this choice or that? Should I quit my job or should I break up with my girlfriend? I never had an answer. Economics should have an answer to that. So I decided to do a study where I I started a website. I called it Freakonomics Experiments. 
and I encouraged through social media and interviews, everything I could, people who were having trouble making a hard decision that they should come to my website. And while there, I messed around and I did a lot of actually misleading in various ways so people wouldn't know why I was doing what I was doing. But ultimately, we offered them an incredible service. If they still couldn't decide whether to quit their job or to break up with their girlfriend, we um, flipped uh, a virtual coin. We had an actual golden coin that we'd flip into the air and it'd slowly come down and bounce around and either would come up heads or tails. And if it was heads, they should um, make a change. And if it came up tails, they should stick in their relationship. And the incredible thing is that first of all, that 20,000 people came and flipped coins at this site. And secondly, that they followed the coin toss. There's something like two-thirds of the people followed what the coin cost said to do. And breaking up with their girlfriends, quitting their jobs, choosing which college they go to based on this, this coin toss. And so then we interviewed them six months later, and it turned out that the people that had gotten heads, it was randomized. So they should be no different than the people who got tails in their lives. Uh, the only difference was that they did actually make more changes in their lives than the people who got tails. And they reported being much happier. And we, we were worried about bias and how people would respond. So we also had them give us a, a third party, just a friend. Uh, and we lied a little bit about why we wanted to have their friend's name. But we wanted their friend's name because we wanted to ask their friend, did they really do the thing they said they would do? And are they happy or not now? And it turns out that the friends verified very much that they, by and large, had done what they told us they had done and that they were happier when they were happier. So I, I came very strongly to believe that there's a, a, a simple rule of thumb which is whenever you cannot decide what to do, you should always make the change because we're stuck in this status quo bias, this sunk cost bias, where, and, and we're bullied by society. Oh, winners never quit. And so look, I think it's a great, like I call people quitters and it's a real compliment when it comes to me when I call you a quitter. Andy J. Pizza takes a different approach to working through ideas. You know, I'm always trying to develop new stories. Everything I do is kind of around that. And when I first think of, oh, I want to tell a story of the time that I accidentally ate raw chicken. Uh, that was a, it's a terrible story, but it's kind of funny. And so the first time I go to do that, I want to go all right-brained, no editing, long-form writing, following every tangent, never listening to that voice, the left-brain voice that's saying, this has nothing to do with this. That's a stupid joke. No one cares, you know, and just follow every single thing and just play. And then I usually will put a version of that that's almost unedited on the podcast. But I found it incredibly insightful then to take that story and then try to turn it into a, take a 15 minute story and try to make a one minute TikTok out of it. And so that's when I get into my editing left brain. Because I'm like, okay, you had all this stuff, all of it's fun, all, you know, whatever. And then what if it actually matters? What was the turning point? Which of these jokes out of the 15 jokes actually were good enough to include in that one minute TikTok? And so, and, and if I don't do it as a TikTok, I'll do it as a, uh, as a comic, like a carousel comic on Instagram. And I have to take this 15 minute story and get it down to these 10 slides. And that process, you'd be blown away. You've probably heard Public speakers talk about how like usually if they're doing the keynote, they have an hour long, this huge story and like every piece matters. And then they're like, okay, now you got to do it as a TED talk. And you're like, that's impossible. And then they right. go do the TED talk and they're like, okay, that was infinitely better than my hour long thing. And I just oh. think you've got to have, you have to know this session is for no critics, downloading, playing, exploring every tangent and having a good time. And then having sessions where you are the exact opposite, say, 
Let's get real. Which of these things need to be crossed out? So it, it, it is almost always true that there is not one idea, but there is, there's a meeting of several different ideas coming from different directions. And where they come from, I mean, sometimes Penn will come to me and say, you know, I just found this trick that's really good, but I don't have an idea for it. Or I'll come to him with the same sort of thing, uh, or we'll make some kind of discovery. Teller of Penn & Teller is somebody I admire in every possible way, and he's one of the most distinguished magicians alive today. Have a listen to what Teller says about what magic teaches us about critical thinking and collaboration, something, of course, he knows quite a lot about after making a career with a partner, Penn. And collaboration in general is not something that I, I have any real wise advice about except to say, obviously, have good manners. Obviously, be honest. Good manners, be honest, and think hard, and be willing to spend the hours and hours in the room before you get the idea. Because a great deal of the time, when Penn and I do a work session, what it consists of is we go out, we we go and we sit down and we have coffee. He has coffee, I have tea. And uh, we talk, we just talk about stuff. And gradually, out of that conversation, Things that have been in the backs of our minds will emerge and they'll turn into things. Or one of us will pull out a list and say, you know, I've been thinking about this, I've been thinking about this. But one of the things about collaboration that you do learn is when to shut up, you know, when to just let the other person work for a while. And honestly, that is a very useful, you know, knowing if you've got a good collaborator, you really can say, you take it for a while and just stand back. I didn't really, I think, have the deep intellectual conviction that fooling with magic was as deep and important a part of the process as I now do. Because, you know, magic deals with the fundamental question, what's real? The question you always have to answer before you enter any situation is, what's really going on here? You know, you step off the curb without looking for the bus, you die. You know, you you pick the wrong doctor and he turns out to be a faith healer. You know, so that very fundamental question, what is real, is at the core of magic. I found this really interesting because Jamie and Swiss pointed out to us that magic teaches kids about communication and critical thinking. In his words, Everyone who gets involved in magic at first is partly motivated by some kind of social maladjustment. It doesn't matter if you're 7 or 70. If you're insecure, you're trying to grow into the world. And magic is a nice path because it helps you communicate with people. That's what it did for me. I was a painfully shy, introverted child. But I always say I had all the qualifications to achieve excellence in magic. I was a fat four-eyed kid with a speech impediment. And so magic really served as a bridge to other people. It also gave gives you a kind of confidence because you have this power, you have this secret, you're demonstrating something special. The first lesson that people learn when they get involved in magic is that things are not necessarily exactly as they appear. That you shouldn't believe everything you see. This is one of the reasons that magic is so great as a sort of developmental instruction for adolescents. My friend Danny Hillis, a uh, world-class technologist, when his three kids were in their adolescence, he hired a magic tutor. Not because he wanted his kids to be professional magicians, but because he thought it was a valuable worldview, if you will. 
that have provided insights into how the world works. And the relationship, the interconnection between magic and critical thinking and rational inquiry and skepticism is one that goes back centuries. Magic, I think, is a fundamentally intellectual art form that we then have learned to present as drama. But at its root, at its root, it has got to look like an impossibility. It is not an art form that you sit back and let wash over you. It's, a, it's an art form that you must engage with, which is one of the reasons it's so incredibly strong and universal, because it's irritating. It's a troubling, irksome art form, because what you think you're good at, which is recognizing reality, is being challenged. And that just makes it incredibly exciting, really roller coaster exciting. In sports, in politics, in movies, in whatever you're doing. Just on talk radio the other day, I heard somebody say, and they're a magician. That's what they're. Now they're talking about politics. You see, they make you look in one place and they look in the other. Or in sports, you know, if, if somebody hits a breathtaking, unlikely home run, it's it's like magic. And I think to myself, it's like magic. It's not quite magic, but it's like that. It's related. And it's interesting that magic, magician's magic, is the baseline. And everybody else sees magic through the lens of whatever wonder is in their field. So with you, it's sports. My good friend Kevin Harlan, who's a, a, a sports announcer, there was a run two years ago in the NFL by the quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens, Lamar Jackson. And it was this incredible run where he beat like six different defenders and spun around and did all just amazing. And as you enter the end zone, Kevin Harlan yells out, he is Houdini. That's how, that's what he yelled out. When you're reaching for something that makes no sense to you in whatever field it is. I, I've heard people who are musicians who say this person is magical, right? Or, you know, in art and in politics, like you say, there's something magical about them. They do something magical. Joe Posnanski is not a magician, not in the typical sense, of course. Joe Posnanski is a best-selling author, a fantastic journalist, and probably the world's expert on baseball statistics. Yet magic had an important lesson for him. It showed him how to truly think outside the box. Here's Joe. There are so many life lessons in magic. I mean, there's so much you can learn from magic that you can absolutely use. I use as a writer. I use as a as a parent. I use as a as a friend. It's across the board, and and part of it is your dedication to the craft, and part of it is thinking in ways that have to be so different. I'd love looking at somebody who does an illusion that you just go, how do you think about that? Like, how does that? How does a mind come up with that kind of thing? And that to me is everybody wants thinking out of the box, you so rarely really get it. And in magic, at its very best, that is the ultimate thinking out of the box. One of the things that magic has always been on the cusp of is pseudoscience. I mean, it's magicians leading the way far more in the last century than scientists in debunking quack science and paranormal claims. Have you encountered a lot of bad science in your work and, and people willfully misleading. I mean, I guess bad science is the wrong term. I'm talking about people misleading others with the intention to do harm or with the intention to deceive. 
I think there are two levels of that. So I think most economists, academic economists, they think they're doing the right thing, right? So they often have very strong beliefs. A great one is, is the research on gun control. So you can hand me a paper on gun control without a title. I only need two words, and I can tell you what the paper will say. I just need the name of the author. Because there's one set of authors who have written collectively 500 papers that say guns are bad. And there's another set of authors who collectively have written 500 papers that say guns are good. And there's virtually nobody who's ever written a paper that says, well, guns are sometimes good and sometimes bad. So just by knowing the name of the author, I can tell you what the conclusion of the paper is. Now, it's not necessarily that they are real, like shysters. It's just that they have very strong beliefs. And I think they they make assumptions and that they don't publish results if they don't agree. So that's bad science, but it's not maybe intentionally misleading. I've also run into a few characters who are just so obviously making up their data that I couldn't take it. And so the same guy twice in two years, I replicated his experiments and got literally the exact opposite. And what's interesting is we published both of those papers in the same journal where he had published his. And in each case, we tried to basically say directly that he was a total fraud. The editor make us, made us take it out and say, oh, it's possible that this is just um, bad luck or some other reason. And the profession, interestingly, did not punish him whatsoever. There was no discussion about the fact that, wait, this doesn't make any sense about how misleading it was and how he wouldn't share his data. So there are really strong incentives in academics to just make stuff up, especially if you're not very successful, because very little gets replicated. I, I never really believe, you know, I, I, th I think most academic studies are wrong, either because of mistakes, either in logic or in execution. So I, I think there's a real myth out there among lay people that they, they should trust academic studies. I, I never trust an academic study. I know at some level that you are not truly violating the rules. You know, it's funny because, you know, one of the things you've taught me is that when people who are trying to figure out the answer, they always follow these incredibly complex things that couldn't possibly really be true. And I think that's somehow related because, so now that I know some of your tricks and you've explained to me and I've seen you do them afterwards, they're still amazing, but it's not as much fun. I mean, a lot of, I haven't said like much of what I try to do is just like have fun. And, um, and I loved, you know, when I went with my son to see your show at the University of Chicago and the thing you did at the end with the t-shirt and the phone, the calculator and the phone, which is still like, I totally don't understand. And I've, I've watched it on, uh, you know, the, the, the YouTube on the version you did on, on the late night show. I mean, I totally have no idea. So I've actually thought about that one. That one, that one was so crazy that I actually thought maybe I could figure it out, you know, knowing that things are simple. But wow, that one, maybe on your, on your deathbed, um, you can write me a quick email. Just tell me what that was so I can, can um, know. You know, in some sense, I'm. It, it's less important whether the paper is right or not, because often the what's what's great about an idea is it gets you to the next idea, um, and and it gets you thinking. Oh well, if that's true, then something else is true. And so, so no, I can't turn it off. But I, I think maybe that's what I more read papers in, and I suppose that's maybe not too different than you in magic. It's, oh, he did this before this. This, you know, that suggests to me I could 
do something different I've never thought about. So, uh, so I think there's a, a lot of joy in that for me. I, it's really, that's the exact parallel to what you described in Magic, which is I think you enjoy it because you're constantly trying to be a better magician in the same sense as I'm constantly in pursuit of ideas and seeing other people's ideas are, are I mean, it, one thing's for sure. I'm sure it's true in magic. I know it's true in academics. It's way easier to steal someone else's good idea and repurpose it to what you need than it is to come up with one from scratch because ideas are rare. They're hard. Richard Wiseman has an interesting title. Professor of the Public Understanding of Psychology. He's also an accomplished magician and a fascinating person to talk to because he creates experiments on the human condition. But here, Richard Wiseman gives us insight on how magic makes you a more creative thinker. I would say that we have unbelievable potential that when you think that that what we have achieved is astonishing, and I always put the point to the moon landings. My last book was about the psychology of getting to the moon. I mean, how astonishing is it to look up and see a a planet that's over a quarter of a million miles away and think, here's the idea, very limited technology, we're going to put somebody on that planet and get them back safely. It's an astonishing vision, which we managed to do. And people shouldn't forget that. I think it's very easy to get dragged down into the the sort of mundane nature of everyday existence and forget that we can achieve huge amounts if we put our minds to it. And when you watch a magician, you're seeing something that's allegedly impossible. But it opens up your mind to that possibility. It makes you an expansive, creative thinker. And I think we have that ability to even comprehend magic or something paranormal because once in a while, one of those seemingly impossible things will come true. So, magic allows you to dream up new possibilities and act on them. It helps you tackle problems even when the solution seems impossible. Because when something impossible does actually happen for real, like putting a person on the moon or the amazing cure for a disease, it's such a wonderful thing. It, it pushes humanity forward. How magicians think is empathically. The way that we think is like you. And this is the best skill of a magician. You know, when I'm creating a magic trick, I am constantly trying to see that trick through the eyes of my audience. And this is a really helpful skill in relationships, in negotiating, in working with people, in spending time socially with people. If you spend more of your time in the headspace of the people around you, you're going to come out with a different perspective than staying in your own head. David Garza has certainly been through it. He spent more than 16 years in incarceration, and now he's a professional magician. And here's what David Garza had to say about what magic can teach us. In magic, in order to really engage an audience, you have to know what their needs are at least from an entertainment standpoint or from a psychological standpoint. And so in learning empathy and learning to view things from the other person's perspective uh, in magic that applied to life and how I can be more sensitive and more empathetic to what someone else is going through and understanding their viewpoints, uh, even if they oppose my own. Werner Reich is a Holocaust survivor and at Auschwitz, 
he learned his first magic trick. And magic stayed with him throughout his stay at the camp and then throughout his entire life. Now 94 years old, Warner talks to us about the magic in healing. In the Jewish religion, there is a principle of tikkun olam, of repairing the world. And I'm trying to make my little, tiny little contribution towards repairing the world so that it's going to be a bit better. I hope in some way that this podcast makes you want to be a magician or appreciate magic, but much more than that, I hope it helps you in your life. This brings us to the end of this limited series podcast event. So you understand how this works. The media company AudioUp asked me to expand upon my book, How Magicians Think. They asked me if it was possible to bring the book to life in the form of a podcast. And what you've just heard across all these episodes is my answer to their request. AudioUp and their team have been exceptional to work with. And I want to give a shout out to the team that helped make this podcast so sonically interesting. Especially to my friend Carrie, who's made these episodes just soar. This was always imagined as a limited series, and while I'm sorry to have to say goodbye to you for now, I hope you know me well enough to know that I'll be back soon, performing in a city near you. As I record these words, I'm about halfway through a nationwide book tour promoting How Magicians Think, and I've had a chance to meet many of my listeners as well. I hope you'll stay in touch. I'm easy enough to reach, and I love hearing from you. I hope you've enjoyed these episodes, and I'll see you down the path. Bye for now. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to fill your friends' lives with magic by clicking that share button inside the app. If you'd like to find more information about me or my career or my book, How Magicians Think, or my tour, you can find all of that at joshuaj.com. And I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Joshua J. And this is How Magicians Think. Magicians Think is a production of Audio Up Media and Vanishing Inc. Executive produced by Joshua J., Jared Gustat, Phil Alberstadt, and Jimmy Jelinek. Written by Joshua J., Audio Up in-house production by Jordana Glick-Fransheim and Nate Glassman-Hughes. Edited by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. Sound design and mix by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. For the full list of production credits, please visit audioup.com. You can find more podcasts from AudioUp on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.